Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful, personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. All right. Well, thank you for Janae for joining. So Janae Myers is a lifelong volunteer who converted her passion into a successful career. She's chief executive officer of Chicago Cares and connects people, communities, and causes and mobilizes more than 30,000 volunteers each year. She also sits on the board of the Mikva Challenge and is a member of the Hands-On Network Affiliate Assembly and commissioner for the Governor's Serve Illinois Commission. She received her bachelor's degree from Michigan State University. Wow, that is a mouthful. You are not stopping. You are continually going at it. How do you do it? Oh, I mean, I sleep. (laughs) I'm like most people. I don't have kids, so I actually sleep. You know, you have to revive yourself and have energy. But I think like I've just found such a passion in the work that I do, the people that I work with, especially with everything that's happening now in our world and in Chicago it's it's easy to be motivated towards a cause. It just feels like the work is, it always kind of felt like the work was never done, but even more so now, like there's just so much more work to do for all of us. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, how can I best use my time, talent, treasures, right? Of all the things that I am and my experiences, lived experiences, my connections, my network, which is really powerful in the city to really launch off and and do great things for people. And that's how I met you was through just connections. You okay, now tell me connector. again where it was. Okay, so Janae doesn't remember this. It <laughs> I'm probably, so terrible. <laughs> no, and nor would, I, I will never forget meeting you. So I met you about five, four years ago. I had just started at CompTIA and I was new to the Chicago scene, to the Chicago Business Network scene. Yeah. And we were doing this early college STEM school uh, program where we were trying to recruit volunteers and mentors for youth. And Matt from yes, yes, the yes, yes, Chicago Workforce Partnership Alliance was one of the lead partners on this. And he was so nice because I didn't have any Chicago contacts. Yeah. He's like, I got you. He's like, And so he started helping. He would go on some of these meetings and uh, yeah, you yes, were one yes, of yes. them. And I when forgot. we went to you, you gave a very, a very polite no. You're like, you're like, but I need volunteers. Yep, <laughs> but we're, yep. we're, you know, essentially fishing for the same pool and thing. Yep, yep. But you were, you were like, but I can help you. And I, I have this person from this company and this person from another company. I just remember leaving that meeting. Like, I like her style. And you were not afraid to be personal in uh, in meeting because I had a lot of interviews that year with a lot yeah. of people in the Chicago scene, and some of them are dry and some of them are just more business, you know, function oriented. You were one of the few that were not scared to let your personality show, oh, and I so loved that. I'm like, you know, what? You. I want to, I want to be like her <laughs> because I was scared too. I was a younger, you know, I was yeah. just kind of like. I don't know what to say. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't right, want to right. look stupid and, and right. uh, or make Matt worse, make Matt look stupid. <laughs> right, make him look bad. Him. Oh my gosh. And so 
Yeah, that's what I oh, I love that. I now so I would have originally said if when I don't remember someone was like, Did I was I did I have a cocktail in my hand? Was it at a networking <laughs> event? Could that be the reason why? Because no. and now we're not doing that anymore. You would think my alcohol consumption would have went down during COVID. It did, did not it increase. It did increase. <laughs> and and I was also one of those people that like never drank alone. And now it's like, well, well it's Zoom or you know, we're doing the whatever. But thank you for that compliment because I do really pride myself on I'm I'm first of all your biggest extrovert you'll ever meet. COVID has been hard for me. Quarantine has been hard for me because I'm not around people. I live by myself. Um, But more than anything, I think it's like I thrive off of other people's energy. Just being around people, you can kind of react to what they give off and then that builds and I, I already, again, have a lot of energy during the day. I, I'm not even a coffee drinker. People are always like, you don't even drink coffee? How do you even start your morning? And I'm like, I don't know, I get uh-huh. up and exercise and stuff. And just, I sleep. Again, I do sleep. Uh, my sister hates that because she's got kids and she's always like, you can watch them and not have the sleep because I, I can't. Because <laughs> she, she doesn't get any sleep she does right not, now. No, she doesn't. She does not. She does not. So it's, it's always funny. But I you know, I believe so much in real connections and authentic connections. And that's the piece that I think sometimes in business we forget about because we're all taught this like persona and everything has to be so perfect and polished and professional. You can still be professional and be yourself. And I think, you know, there's just a movement now around people being more their whole selves. And especially now that we're all living at work, right? In in this kind of a world, how do you think about bringing your whole self? And, you know, I, I think people have liked me and gravitated towards me because I share that and I'm not afraid to share it. Um, that's also taken years to get there too. I think in my twenties, I probably wasn't that way, but as I've evolved and grown older and more experiences, like it's not as scary because actually, you know, you'll, you'll see the people, the, the good ones that react to you in that way, how positive it can be. So how are you dealing with not being around people as much now? Okay. So at first it was freaking me out. Like I went a whole like 60 plus days without touching another human being and touch is my love language. So A, that was a problem. (laughs) I I was like watching friends' dogs. I'm like, you know, like this from six feet away with friends. Like I just want to touch you. It was really hard. And um, I got into, and just call it out, like if Michelle Obama can say she was in a low-key depression, like I was depressed for a while. It was very hard for me because again, I get my energy from being around people and I was super low energy. So add on to it, it was a crisis, right? So this is even, right, the first of COVID before the George Floyd murder, like that was bad enough (laughs) as it is for our organization and everything we're dealing with and staffing. I mean, it was a crisis unlike any other. And we were I think so many of us as leaders were dealing it with a, a, a sprint, right? It was a crisis sprint. Yeah. And then we soon realized, eh, maybe not soon enough, but like it's a marathon. <laughs> you are going to <laughs> fall over at this pace if we continue at it. And I also, Andrea, I live in a studio apartment. So I'm in 650 square feet. We got rid of our offices because we chose people over place. So like I now live, Chicago Cares headquarters is my little studio apartment in the South Loop. All of that, I'm not going to lie, has been really hard for me. And as soon as like the stay home order and we could start doing things, like I was, I mean, and as, as the weather got nice, I'm like, who wants to see me? Like, I don't care how far away it has to be. Like, I right. just need to see people and be around you. And yeah. then, you know, we'd go, my, my one girlfriend has this, we kept calling it a grassy knoll because I mean, who really has yards in Chicago? It's like a patch of grass by her apartment. And we'd go sit on the grassy knoll and have some drinks and just be <laughs> with each other. And it filled my soul. I also think like the lack 
that COVID has provided and like what it took away from us has shown just such a greater appreciation for that. Because I was before 100% again, back to the cocktail in my hand at all the networking events. Mm-hmm. I always said I was on the cocktail and appetizer diet of that's, those were my meals because mm-hmm. I was out every single night. I always joked that, you know, I, I live in a studio apartment, but I just sleep and shower there and I store my clothes. Like I was never, ever home. Mm-hmm. And now I'm home a lot. <laughs> so, right, how you deal with all of those things and think differently, it's been an adjustment. And I had to do an attitude adjustment for myself because I was in a not great place, not feeling like myself. And my staff recognized it. My staff was like, oh, Janae's that was lost a nasty. Sparkle. That was a nasty Zoom. <laughs> kind of, like, you know, and for someone who's normally 98% of the time happy and upbeat, to be in that kind of dark place was hard for other people to see me as. And the most hysterical thing, I'm, I'm very vain about a lot of things, but when I can go back to my eyelash girl to get my eyelashes done. They I look can, great. Thank you. I try. It yeah. makes it very, for the minimal makeup look, it like works. Like I could see them from thank here. You. Thank you. And, and, I, and I need a touch up. Um, so thank you. <clears throat> but so I, the moment that I hit rock bottom during COVID was coming out of it. And I went to go see my eyelash lady, get my eyelashes done. You're lying in them with the mask on, on a table. And she's all up in my business, you know, doing my eyelashes. And she could feel the negative energy radiating off of me. And, you know, I've known this woman for like three or four years and she's just like, Janae, you're not yourself. And when she said that to me, I was like, wow. It was just like a mirror that I hadn't been looking in or had been avoiding. And for someone so outside of my work world and everything else to have like pulled off that energy from me, it made me stop and go, what am I doing? Let me readjust. Let me think about things. And again, that's when I was like marathon, not a sprint feeling a little trapped in my house with work and everything else. How do I get out? How do I make time? How do I be intentional? Um, How do I get a better routine? So those were some of the things that I did to get myself out of it. But it was was definitely a a harder place. And I I am in fear of what happens this winter. I'm in talks with girlfriends about getting like a house or something someplace warm so we can all be together and pod together. (laughs) Because I can't do it again. So has a podcast helped with that? Oh my God. Yes. Yes. So I actually, so we started a little, this was back to my staff recognizing like Janae's being negative Nelly, like we need to get her out of this. And this was one of the ideas. They were just like, hey, you know, how about we highlight our partners? Janae loves to talk. She loves interacting with people. So let's do a podcast. So we started this podcast called How Chicago Cares. Uh, I think we have like eight or nine episodes, maybe 10. It's been incredible. All leaders of color that we've been bringing on, maybe maybe one who wasn't, but almost all leaders of colors who we're bringing on to have conversations about what's going on in their space, their world, talking about you know community engagement, all good things. And it's been awesome because it does, it feels like conversation with friends, which it it gets me out of my kind of normal every day, giving me that energy, hard mm-hmm. always to get the energy off of a Zoom, but you can do it. From those conversations, are you finding that it's allowing you to hear your partners in a new way or at least see their side of the business or what they're working on? Incredibly. Like the the leaders that we work with and know that are in our, our sphere and our, our orbit are just incredible, right? So like, first of all, everybody has been to a T so honest with where they are in their headspace and how difficult this is. So that acknowledgement also, you know, it just makes you feel like you're not alone, right? Yeah. So that that in and of itself is huge. But then how how people are so creatively pivoting 
And again, realizing the shared connection and humanity that we all have and what needs to happen and how we should be pushing forward, like all of those pieces are so critical and important. And to see people have snapped into action in such a way has been awesome to see. So I've been really impressed with our partners, with so many people who are doing just like such incredible work at such a necessary time. And we all need to keep doing it. Like that this is this is the the work and the the long slug because the systematic racism that exists, the deep oppression that is still happening in a lot of our communities of color, like we have to start combating it. We have to start having these conversations and all of us are poised in different ways to tackle some of that, but there's there's no one answer. So it really is all of us working together towards that. You have the the microphone there and you have the setup. Has it been hard in terms of just the technical logistics and organizing for the podcast? Oh, well, I, I'm going to be selfish. I have a team, so they do all that. Like I was <laughs> like, let me get a selfie light so I can look good and let me get the microphone so I can sound better. Like that was my contribution and I helped pick the guests. The thing that we realized was, especially as you know, for podcasts, the more authentic the conversation can be. So we really looked at who's in my network, who's in my friend group that we could bring on because those folks, I mean, there's already an intimate connection between us because we know each other. So you can kind of dig in yeah. on some things that would be surface to other people. Again, most of my friend group is also in the sector. So it really worked out very well. So those have been great. So basically my team does all the work. We're still figuring out sound. Like that's the hardest thing. Cause uh. like I might have a mic, but somebody else doesn't. It gets glitchy if you're doing the video and the, the sound, blah, 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 all the things. But yeah. it's, it's been, it's been fun because it also gives us a platform that we can elevate other people's stories, which is so important right now. And because Chicago cares is at such a unique place in both corporate and nonprofit and government. Like we just sit at this place of power and privilege, frankly. So how do we lift up other community organizations that maybe wouldn't potentially have that access yeah. and continue to just, you know, shine a light on them and spotlight the work that they're doing. And I love that you said um, really giving your partners and your friend groups and people of color a voice and talking about the murder of George Floyd and talking about social injustice. And there's a lot going on in the city right now. Oh do you live in the city downtown? Yes. So I live in the South Loop. So like Ninth and State, which this most recent looting that happened Sunday to Monday on State Street, right across the street from my house, got hit again. That is not your big box stores. Those are small mom and pop shop, like, you know, little pizza joint, not a chain, you know, mart where you go and get like all your sundries and snacks and stuff, right? So that part is hard to rationalize. And even downtown, right? Like I've had this debate with so many folks. Nothing is a monolith, right? There were 200 some people who came downtown and did this. Well, not condoning any of the acts, but understanding the reasoning why they felt they needed to. It is not just one side of the story. And I yeah. think people want to paint it one way or the other. And I, and I think we have to have an understanding of both. And I've had a number of friends that like have posted or, or you know, made some comments about this. And it's hard because sometimes you see people will just like pick a side instead of acknowledging 
there's sides to both of this, right? There's fear that's put into downtown and businesses and people who live and work downtown that could, you know, be terrible for our tax base. That's where we do get our dollars and resources that we can use in the community for jobs. Like there are definite ramifications for that. But there's also, again, back to power and privilege that happens downtown and is really centered in downtown that has not at all equally distributed to the neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So that... That equity, when we talk about equity, that is not fair distribution of wealth, power, privilege. So that's where some of that clashes, and that is through policy and right generational issues that have been around, you know, for as long as we've we've all been. Like right, racism is in the air that we breathe because it's just been the construct that has been around since since we've all been in existence. How do we start to think differently? How do we acknowledge that? How do we acknowledge the harm? How do we acknowledge the investments that we need to be making in community? But also there's a balance here. And and I think both sides have to give. It it would Mm -hmm. be my opinion, right? We need to do more talking, less finger pointing. We need to do more compromising and collaborating and listening, listening, listening. That is something we're hearing a ton of is, you know, especially for people that are hurting and have been, you know, again, historically oppressed over centuries. How are we really listening to what their needs are and what's happening? And how are we responding in like, and, and there's no one answer back to all the, you know, community organizations that we work with. Someone might be tackling education or early childhood or someone's dealing with violence directly on the streets. Like there are so many issues happening and agencies, organizations, people out there um, combating that. I think we all have to be thinking about really being strategic and working together towards those goals. And I think we are in a moment in time, in the world, in the space where people are ready for that. So I I just hope people will put aside the polarization and get there. And that's hard for someone like me because I'm an extremist. I am like on a pendulum. I go right or left hard, right? And there's, it's really hard to find that in between, which is why to your point, these conversations matter because it checks me and my viewpoint and my framework of, you know, that's wrong, but this is also wrong and this is also right. You only get that through listening to the perspective of other people. We have to first be in relationship with each other to even have the conversation. I think that's the thing that Social media, while wonderful in a lot of ways, right? Like we hide behind the anonymity of a post or a comment. And I I think that takes away the relational piece of how people are with each other. And that's the piece that I would say is most important is how you're in relationship with people, what that could look like. And being able to have honest and authentic conversations with folks, no matter your race, your color, your creed, your socioeconomic background, like all the things. Yeah, You have to be able to be in relationship with people. So that's something Chicago Cares really tries to do is get folks of difference in relationship with each other. Because once that starts to happen and there's a little trust built, that's another issue society is having right now is there's just no trust. trust. And not just amongst individuals, like it's also institutions, right? Mm -hmm. It's government, all the things, right? Who do you trust? And then layer on to that, besides the trust issue, it's like, how do you even in a COVID world, how do you even get outside your bubble, right? Like, <laughs> it is so hard to get outside the bubble because you don't want to see, part of the, the fear I think that's in, in, ingrained right now in people is you don't want to have contact with other people. Right. And if you do, you only want to have contact with those that are inside your bubble, that are safe or yep. that you know where they've been. 
yep. that your exposure isn't high Girl, risk. I, I'm, it is like an STD test all over. <laughs> like this is like legit. I, 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 I have all the un, inappropriate jokes for COVID, but it's like, I, I have now said I'm taking the COVID test. Like it's the plan B pill. Like you yeah. make a unquestionable decision and then you go ahead, take the plan B pill or you get a COVID test, right? Same thing with like, then you're waiting for the results around like, oh my God, do I have an STD? No, I don't have an STD. Like, do I have COVID? And then like, can I even be around my friends? And then you got to tell everybody. It's like, it is yeah. truly the same kind of a thing. Yeah. And it it's not pleasant and it's not anything that any of us want to be doing. But I think it's making us be more transparent, making us be more honest about things, really kind of facing up to some of that. But also we have to think about if we are now self-isolating for safety's sake and all these things, how are we going to grow? How are we going to learn? How do we hear a difference of opinion? My parents who I love dearly are on the other end of the political spectrum than my beliefs. And just being, I've you know been in Michigan for a couple of weeks now visiting family because I can and the flexibility, but it's shown me the world right now, again, back, we're not, we're so black and white. We're, n- we're no gray, yeah. but that's actually where the world exists yeah. <laughs> is in the middle, in the grays. And there are extremes, but when all we do is cater to the extremes, it's been really hard for us to find any similarities, common commonalities in order to like find and move forward. And so it again, feels so polarizing, which is, which is difficult. So that's been a lesson for me being home to kind of really see that. Yeah. What does your family say about it? I mean, right when when you're home and all the politics talks and then all of the, what do they say and how do you deal with that? You know, I, I take a couple stances. One is I love my family and I don't want to cause conflict, especially as my parents age. But I also want to stand for my values and my beliefs. So it's it's a very fine line. And sometimes the conversations are pretty short. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're really long. When I woke up again uh, yesterday to the looting and the riots, and then I walk out to see my parents, and they're immediately like, "Oh, I'm glad you're not in Chicago, and I can't believe that happened." And you know, kind of going on this tirade. And I was on it too until I was reading and paying attention and listening to more than one side and seeing what was out there. And then I, I, I've gotten to a different opinion, but it's hard. It is not easy to exist in that state because so often all of us, like there's an algorithm for life as it is our social media and everything else we interact with that we continue to see the things that we want to see and hear the things we want to hear from the same kind of people. And as much as my parents are on the opposite side, they're getting that from their social media feed and from the TV that they watch and the people they interact with as much as I do. Mm -hmm. And because those are so opposite, it's, it's been really difficult. So finding that bridge and finding language for the bridge that's not polarizing, not offensive, mm. not hurtful. Because I think also too in these political conversations, it, it gets to be about values and individuals. And I try to try, not always successfully, it's hard, to raise the conversation up to systems and talk about systems, right? And policies that, you know, talking about policies doesn't feel like I'm saying anything bad about my dad. It's like talking about the policies that are broken. And oftentimes when we can get the conversation to systems, we have actually a lot of agreement on certain things that aren't working and what needs to be fixed. Now, how and all of that different, but there is always some agreement. I think, again, because at least we're in relationship with each other and we have a very loving 
family and honest, you know, relationship, we can have those conversations, but it's, it's definitely difficult. It's it's different. Mm -hmm. You talked about that algorithm for life, right? And everybody kind of runs off of their programs. And that's Mm -hmm. the questions we ask ourselves based off of that input. How did you learn your specific programs that were different from the way that you were brought up. It's interesting too, because while politically different, I was brought up in a school district that public schools, my parents were public school teachers. So it was very important that we go to public school. And my, you know, elementary, middle, high school, it's basically like half black, half white. Mm-hmm. Uh, socioeconomic, grew up in Michigan. So like you had the rich families whose parents like worked at GM and Ford. Again, my parents were teachers, so we were middle of the road. And then my best friend in high school lived in a trailer park. So like you had the socioeconomic differences, you had the race differences, and it just was, that was the world I grew up in. And then going to college, so went to Michigan State, this is fascinating. I ended up in a sorority. A couple of the girls who went to Troy High School, which is not where I went, I ended up kind of, I always call it like the other side of the tracks, high school, Avondale. It just wasn't the fancy kind of all white school. Maybe not 100% all white. There's maybe some Asian American folks, but mostly all white, definitely not black or Latino, definitely higher income uh, area. And some girls in college were just like, I've never seen a black person until I got to Michigan State, like only on the Cosby show. And I was like, what? What? (laughs) What? (laughs) What? Like, I don't get it. Like I I went to school with a ton of black kids. Like that was just... I don't know. That was my normal. So I think that was my grounding perspective. And what I will say is even though there's political differences, my parents intentionally made that choice of where I went to school. They picked a house, not on the Troy side where it was all the hoity-toity wealthy to do mostly white school. They picked a diverse school for a reason. I think having that kind of a background and then add on my personality. And when I came to Chicago, I worked for the city of Chicago. I worked for the mayor. Um, I had incredible exposure to the entire city. And you got to see a little bit of everything, which to me was always so incredible to see, you know, every single neighborhood, how different it was, but you could find commonalities in people. I always say like, all families want the same thing for their children. They want good education, good schools, things to be safe. They want access. They want to be able to put food on the table. Like there's so many similarities that I think, you know, again, get, get lost. So I think some of my upbringing certainly helped reflect that. And, you know, we're constantly shaped. We're constantly shaped by our experiences. And I, I would say my kind of early formative career was at the city of Chicago as you know, running around with Mayor Daly all over the city. And so how did to, that happen? So much to my parents' dismay, this is a great story. Much to my parents' dismay, I, I worked at home after Michigan State for a year and then was like, I'm leaving. I, I, can't, I can't do Michigan anymore. I've got a friend in Chicago. I'm just, I'm moving. I'm moving. And in my big, like, I'm big girl. I'm going to do this. I'm going to move. All I really brought was like my stuff and I got a new bed. And my dad is like, so you're just moving with a bed and no job. Like, what are you going to do? And I was like, it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. Like, I'm going to, so I moved. Did to you Chicago. have your, did you have your profession already? Like your no, track? No, no, I was actually working at a PR agency. I thought I was going to be a PR girl. I was like interviewing with Margie Korshak and like Fleischman and all these companies that I thought like I was going to totally go be one of those PR girls. <laughs> and thank God I wasn't because like I, my team needs to like redline me on everything. I, I, I speak and run on sentences. I write on run on sentences. I need someone to edit me at all times, much to my mother's dismay. So I would actually think about like, okay, 
I moved to Chicago. I just have like a bed in my shit basically. And I start interviewing at these PR firms. And then I ended up at a friend of mine was working in the mayor's office. She was like typing Mayor Daly's schedule and she got a new gig. She brings me in for an interview and they liked me. And I think part of the reason they liked me is because I'm not from Chicago. So it wasn't like the, hey, who sent you? The typical yeah. political stuff. It was like, oh, she has no idea. Yeah, she <laughs> and, and so like two weeks into <laughs> Chicago, I land a job at the mayor's office. I call my parents and my dad is like, the mayor's office? Like Chicago? And I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, Mayor Daly did that. And he's like, you might want to look up the history books just like just a little bit, maybe like get a little context for what you're walking yourself into. Because I was like, Mayor Schmeyer, I'm from the suburbs of Detroit. Like, mayors aren't anything. It's no big deal. And it was like, oh my God, I'm like, it's like presidential style level. I was doing advance for Mayor Daly, taking him out. There's a whole security detail, like the amount of things that I learned that was by far the best place I could have landed for my entire career. And, and again, I always say, I was like, I was the schlepper. I was, I was the one doing all the kind of menial work, but I was also in charge of the mayor when he was outside of city hall and he listened to me. Yeah, I had to know what I was doing. So it was like you had to you had to learn the city. I made lots of mistakes, trust me. But you you really had to get a, a real good feel of everything that's happening in the city. And I got to meet people from every walk of life, every neighborhood, every community. And that built my network. And because again, I was authentic. I was real. I wasn't afraid of hard work. People liked and respected me. And then as I moved up in my career, that followed me. And to this day, I mean, I've been in Chicago now for 20 years, which is crazy to think. It's home to me. I've almost lived in Chicago longer than I've lived in Michigan. And I think it's, you know, for me, it's been this awesome, awesome career that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be where I am now had I not had those early experiences working with the city, working with Mayor Daly, working with Maggie Daly, like just had some really incredible experiences. What did you learn from the mayor, like working with the mayor um, in terms of like how to get better at your job? So perfection was actually standard. Like you can't mess up. Like one time his security detail called me and was like, Janae, this address that you put in is like, it's in the lake. Where are we supposed to go? I don't know where to take them. You put the wrong address. This address is actually in the lake. And I'm like sweating, 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 freaking out, going like, ah, I don't know. Is it west instead of east? Well, it must be because east is in the lake. Like, what is the address? <laughs> you know, it's so like little things that you mess up. So like attention to detail for sure is something that I learned, but also you know, you learn to be strategic in roles like that because you start to connect the dots. And if you're an observer of people, which is something I really try to pay attention to is you can see certain things happen like, oh, well, then this happened and that happened and then this and this. Oh, and now today it's in the paper. Oh, well, okay. Here's how all that happened. And, you know, being in rooms, being in discussions, like especially early stage career, it is a hard thing to learn strategy. You just kind of have to be in the room and listen. It's not about being the one to say anything. I wasn't, uh, as, as a young career person at the city, I wasn't the one at the table. I wasn't leading meetings, but I was in the room. And I could hear things, right? So when Hamilton came out with like being in the room when it happened, that is 100% real of like just being able to be in some of those power places and observe and see how some of that went down, I think was so instrumental to my career. And then as I was able to move up, I was able to leverage those networks and those connections and some of those lessons that I'd learned. And, you know, I still think like, okay, what am I going to say? How's that going to, is that going to end up on the front page of the paper? 
How do I avoid conflict? How do I not step into shit, right? Like, how, how do you do this? You have to kind of think like that. And that's something that I learned very early on, very young. And then also just like to be responsible, right? Like there was at the city, I always joke, like there wasn't performance reviews. There wasn't training. <laughs> no, none of that stuff. Like I think, you know, eight years at the city, I never once had a performance review, never once like got an extra training. You just have to figure it out. So being resourceful and learning and listening and asking questions, asking questions, asking questions and and bringing people in was just kind of the innate style that I came up in and that has served me well then in my career. What about dealing with Chicago politics and the whole political scene? How is that navigating? And especially because you're outside of the, of the know and outside of the loop in a sense. And now you come in this, you know, fresh thing. And how do you deal with this? Were you ever in a position where you were scared or at least overwhelmed or? Overwhelmed all the time, like all the time. And here I, I mean, at the time too, when I first started, like, I don't know what, 22, 23 years old, I was like a fresh faced little kid and not understanding like some of the stuff, right? Like, there's, there's one point I was in an elevator with Mayor Daley, then state's attorney Dick Devine, and then Senator Durbin. And the mayor like goes for something and he's like, Janae, like I, I need to talk to Dick afterwards in the green room. And I was like, well, which Dick? <laughs> <laughs> and then he looked at me and was like, I was like, but wait, really, both of their names are Dick. Or Dick. And technically, you're Richard. So, like, who do you mean? Like, what do you... So, like, I was constantly stepping in stuff, which you just can't avoid. And the power, like, to be exposed to that kind of power was incredible. Like, just incredible as a young person to watch. But I watched. I learned. I wasn't scared for, like, Chicago... Like, I was going to, like, end up in the Chicago River in cement boots. Like, never that. Never that. Although I do jokingly say if I share too many of my stories before Rom and Daily die, like, that's that's going to be me. I'm going to be cement boots in the river. It's more just the finesse of it. Like, and it, it was also cutthroat, right? Like, people weren't easy. I, I always say I learned to swear in the mayor's office, too. I can throw out a good F-bomb. Shit just kind of comes out of my mouth. Again, much to my mother's dismay. She's sometimes, She's just like how did this happen? And I was like, I don't know. Like I worked at the city and like, that's just how people talked. And you know, you kind of pick up on that. It was the most amazing experience though, because there's politics and everything. That's something my dad always told me. He's like, there are politics in everything. There's politics in a school district, in a classroom, there's politics everywhere. And, And there really is. So when you learn to play at the level of Chicago mayor's office politics, you get pretty good at it. Right. And, and I think that sense, it's kind of like a spidey sense, right. Of like, Ooh, this is off. Ooh, I need to double check. Ooh, this doesn't feel right. That that kind of instinct, I think, is just kind of ingrained over time and experiences as you see things happen, evolve. That didn't go well, or somebody got in trouble, or that did go right. Like to just kind of do some of that analysis, that has served me incredibly well. And my now inside outsider, right? Yeah. Like I try because I've been gone now for so long. Let's say I've been at Chicago Cares for seven years. So last, last run I was in the mayor's office was 12, uh, 2012. And it's been a minute and administrations have changed. So it is also very hard <laughs> to keep connections and 
you know, I, I'm a get shit done person. So like I'm able to pick up the phone and get shit done. And who do I need to call? Who do I need to text? Who can I get to? And it's not, it's like never the mayor. It's never the top person, right? Like it's always the person underneath the person underneath the person who like you kind of get to, mm-hmm. but that navigating of city government was something I got incredibly good at and what I've tried to maintain. So for me, ever since I've left, I've tried to maintain those relationships. So again, the authentic relationships I've been able to form for when I was there, I hold on to those. I'm a big, let's go grab coffee, even though I don't drink coffee. Let's go grab a drink. Let's, you know, keep connected to people. You know, when you see something, send them a personal handwritten note. My mother and Maggie Daly both, you know, handwritten note train, like that is one of the nicest things you can do for people. All of those like little tricks of the trade were incredibly important, but that helped me maintain my network in order to then once I'm kind of in a more of a position of power to leverage and use that. But again, some of the most amazing grounds to learn that work was at the city of Chicago. And I do say like, once you've kind of done that, you can do almost anything. You could do anything. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by being the outside insider? So <laughs> I would say sometimes it still feels like I work at the city because I know enough people or like they'll call me for stuff, right? Like, okay, Janae, well, you know, or you used to be here, or you da 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 da, right? So yeah. It's good because I'm still connected enough that people really trust me and, you know, trust me because, again, get shit done person. Trust me because I can hold confidence when necessary. I also am a wealth of information because I'm nosy. I am nosy, nosy, nosy. And people know that about me. Like, you know, I would get calls during COVID from folks that are just like, okay, what's happening? Like, what's your assessment of what's going on? What's on the ground? What are you hearing? What's happening? And I've got the information because I'm talking to people. You have sources. I've got sources. I've got sources. So... That part, I think, is why I can still stay connected and why people want me connected. And, and again, I've got, I've got friends that are working in a lot of these areas and departments. I mean, every kind of major government official, I could point to a friend working in, in those offices. So having that kind of inside track and access is important, but I cultivate that. I'm purposeful about it. But it gets me what I need because I'm truly me. I'm one of those people, what you see is what you get. So when I was in my dark place during COVID, like it was clear. It was, it was, it was there was no like, oh, is she? No, it's clear. No. And when I'm happy, it's clear. <laughs> when I'm sad or mad, it's clear. So, you know, people just know that what you see is what you get with me. And that is something people can really rely on and know that like, you know, I'm not trying to do anything covert. We've all kind of done stuff where I think I'm being strategic and then it seems sneaky. And then I'm like, oh shit. And I'm the first to say my bad. Yeah. I didn't mean to come across that way, but Overall, it's like I'm, I'm coming with genuine intent and people believe that. So then I'm able to keep those relationships. How are you staying emotionally and mentally fit during COVID? I was early on on the Peloton bandwagon. Oh, I'm, I, did, I did a 45 minute ride today with Alex. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Love, 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 love. I love Peloton. I was early adopter, I mean, early COVID. Like I got it in January, thank goodness. So that kept me through, which was huge. Uh, but again, it did not make up for my snacking at all. No. Um, and now it's walking, right? So like, um, especially as soon as the weather got nice in Chicago, I was out walking. I'd make appointments to walk with friends. We'd socially distance walk. So try to get out morning and evening for a walk and then do a Peloton once a day. I could do more as far as the exercise front, but it's also like, I, I, I haven't been that person who's like, oh my God, I'm going to get in the best shape ever. Because my mind is so occupied with the world the organization, what we're going through, this has been some of the toughest leadership challenge I've ever been in. Because mm-hmm. again, no, there was no class for this. No one was prepared for what would happen. The choices that we've been presented with and the weight of them, 
it's been insane. Like the organization could have went under like yeah. easily, like, uh, you know, let's talk about Chicago care. Yeah. That, this is your organization yep. is getting yeah. people together, getting people together out in the world with other people. They don't know strangers, right. Yeah. Connecting people of difference in, in an event setting, sometimes about, you know, volunteering with stuff, touching other people's shit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> all of a sudden we were like, Oh my God, like, we're, what are we going to do? Just gloves everywhere. Masks everywhere. Okay, sure. But are people going to want to be going? And then, you know, we're working in black and brown neighborhoods on the South and West side. And we think, Oh my gosh, are these corporate people going to want to leave their bubble where the majority of the COVID cases are happening in black and brown communities, right? Mm-hmm. You, you have all these thoughts of like, is our model going to go away? And yeah. that was real. And, and then, we started to go like, okay, what other things do we have to offer? How can we, and an important part about what we talk about at Chicago Cares is there's the service and the volunteering, which is great and critical, but it's really the pre and the post that's even more important. The pre being the education and the understanding the issues. So some of the things we talked about earlier, Andrea, right? Like of the systematic poverty, all of the racial oppression, all the things happening in the world. A volunteer doesn't have a good understanding of that or, or even like, okay, you go to volunteer at a food pantry. Why is there even a need for a food pantry? Why is there food insecurity? What do you know about, right, the, the whole system behind that? So how do we educate volunteers in a time like this? And again, using technology, the mediums that we have accessible to educate volunteers before they ever go serve. And even if that service comes much later because of, again, the social distancing and the rules and everything else, they will now be better prepared. And I think there was also a real moment in time that we recognized that with COVID, there was a bit of an equalizer. More people on unemployment, more people seeing the cracks in the social fabric of the social safety net, Yeah, right? More people being affected than they ever had. So again, while the haves and have nots will always continue to be a very wide divide, it has changed, I think, to be, it just was obvious to more people, right? Like, the inequities, seeing the issues and the problems where our government was failing, right? All these, the healthcare system. So that was a moment in time to say, oh, wait, people are going to be receptive to this now. They're not on their hamster wheel anymore. They've got more time to think and more time to research and more time. So we said, how can we virtually educate our volunteers more? So we've created a number of virtual kind of online trainings, engagements, et cetera, trying to again, get as good as we can with the energy and engagement as possible. But then, you know, the George Floyd murder happened and now all of a sudden our city's in the civil unrest and there was a moment in time where it was just like, we have to do something. Like we have to like get out and do something. Our neighborhoods, you know, that we work with, they didn't have access to food. So, you know, I'm shopping in the West Loop. People are going to the suburbs to get food and bringing it down to Englewood and Auburn Gresham. Like we were directly servicing our communities. We did drives. We we really kind of turned into some rapid response to try to figure out how to be responsive. And then as summer has been around, it's like, how do we get back out in the parks and how do we do gardening projects? Like, how do we just get people out Mm -hmm. to again, respond to some of these needs? And again, now we've been thrown yet another curveball of what does this mean? We, we haven't quite figured it out. We, we said we're intensifying some of the things we're doing. We're doing a supply drive uh, this weekend on the 15th to benefit some of our community partners, but now needed even more so. So it's, it's been a challenge. Plus we think about staffing, money, resources. I say to a lot of my um, friends in the, in the nonprofit space, this year feels like a pass, meaning it, the dollars were budgeted. People were still happy to give you those dollars next year with the ramifications of what happens with budgeting federal dollars coming down to state dollars, what that looks like. 
it's it's a huge question mark for me. You know, 08, when we had the recession, uh, 08 wasn't bad, but 9 and 10 were. So, and again, these unknowns of what could potentially happen, I I just, it's, it's, it's a hard call. Uh, Do people, more people move out of the city? Do people, you know, do businesses not want to invest in communities as much anymore? Because again, feeling this kind of polarization of, you know, one side or the other, there's a, a lot of those pieces that we as an organization have to deal with because we have to not only plan our programming, the work we do, manage our team and our staff, our team and staff, a lot of them come from these neighborhoods and communities where they've, they're already suffering trauma. And then you add on layers of, of what's happening and, and feeling insecure about work. I've told my team, like, I'm not promising anybody anything. Yeah. We just don't know what's going to happen. And we might have to downsize. Uh, I, I don't want to. And we've, we've been able to stave that off as of now. But that's not guaranteed, especially for next year. So it just, it's a lot of uncertainties that make it really difficult to, to lead. So I'm just trying to give myself as much space and time when I can to just recharge, to not get in that dark place again. So I can have the energy to do what I need to do to, you know, A, help the organization survive and thrive, but then to continue to work with the communities and affect, you know, the communities that we're working in 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 the most positive way that we can leveraging, again, our power, privilege, and positionality. Do you guys see yourself going back to the offices anytime soon? Oh, no, we got rid of the office completely. Oh, for sure. Permanently. Permanently. So we actually chose people over space. We were luckily... Uh, able to get out of our lease, which was, you know, now look at the copiers and stuff. That has been a pain in the ass. I'm not going to lie to you. Those little office things that like you've got a long contract for, those are much harder to get out of. But our landlord was incredibly, incredibly generous and understanding our situation let us out. So we're work from home uh, indefinitely right now. Eventually, I think we'll go back because again, besides me, like I don't want Chicago Cares headquarters to be my house, my studio apartment. But besides that, right, we, we think that like, you know, some of the best, everybody says this about offices, right? Some of the best collaboration and energy happens when you're together. So how, how do we recreate that safely? And we're thinking, you know, maybe instead of downtown offices, we have regional offices where we're really putting our dollars and investment where we'd be paying rent into a community partner versus downtown someplace. Yeah. So we've got options, but we're also in no rush. And we are very lucky that we're a, an organization and company that could go remote and have the technology to support that. So it's it's been interesting. I will say I'm going to redecorate my apartment because I'm there all the time. I yeah. liked it, but I've, you know, now I'm looking at it every day. I'm like, let me do something different. <laughs> this is now a whole new environment that I really have to live in. Have you found that the work from home balance has been different oh. now that we're always working? I feel? Yes, <laughs> it is. It is 100% always working. It is not turning it off. Like back to the sprint, right, of covid it was like everything was an emergency. Everything, I mean, I was working more than I've ever worked. I was working, you know, from sunup until sundown and past. I mean, I normally am a go to bed at nine. I'd work till like 10 o'clock at night. I, I normally would stop at five because I had a cocktail hour to go to at a yeah. networking event. And like that was work too, but it was different. Fun. Kind of it was fun work. It, it really was. <laughs> like I, I, I now, I used to complain about it a little bit. And I'm like, yes. I'm never complaining about a cocktail party or networking or a gala ever again. <laughs> but ever, if we ever do that again, I, 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 I am it. there. A hundred percent. Like invite me someplace. Invite um, me. <laughs> please, I'll go. I'll be, I will be sparkling personality. Like I'm so on it. But that part is, is really difficult there hasn't been much of a balance. And, you know, between our smartphones and everything that we have, it's just like everybody, we're so accessible to folks and you never know what's going to happen. So it's also like, eh. 
So I've really encouraged my team to like take the time when we can, right? So like if it's a random Friday that you can take or a Monday afternoon, like I would do my shopping on, because I didn't want to go to the stores on the weekend. So I'd go, you know, to Target or Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or wherever I'd go to do my stuff, like in the middle of the day for just an hour, but that would be my break because I could. And it was not as crowded. Like, so just taking the time and the space, I think is really important. And then the self-care, right? So getting my lashes back, doing my, once I was yeah. able to get my hair done and all my beauty things that I, uh, made me feel normal again. Although I, this is also a hysterical story. And I think all women can relate. You'll probably relate to this. First time I tried to put on a pair of heels and not even like a stiletto style heel. Like I'm talking a Tom's platform <laughs> shoe for the summer that normally I could run around in. And my feet hurt so bad because all I've been in is like flip-flop sneakers and, and, and slippers. Like, cause I don't leave the house. <laughs> so we're not like getting dressed up and wearing shoes around your own house. So yeah, it's, it's a difference. And I'm like, I look at my closet full of beautiful clothes and all these kind of things. And here I am, you know, in a Target sweatshirt and it just, it's not the same. No, no. This is where you got to put on your fashion show with your podcast, Janae. I know, right? I, yes, no. I know. I do need to step that up. I did put on a little makeup and try to do my hair, but yes, uh, 100%. You look great. You well, look thank you. Great. Thank you. Always trying. Uh, well, I know that you are busy and I thank you for taking time to, to chat with me today. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. I'm so glad to reconnect. And now that you tell the story and all the things, it's all, it does come back together. I'm actually really good with names and faces, but it like sometimes takes a minute. Well, I will, I will never forget you. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was awesome. Have a good one. Thanks, Thanks so you too. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out TuesdaysWithAndrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comment section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web, and stay hella hopeful in your heart.